every church, there will be matters of disagreement. Some of them will simply be disagreements over matters of style. Musical style, style of dress, what style are you going to decorate the church in, and so on. Some of them will be disagreements over matters of belief that are not central to the faith. For example, we all do and must believe that Jesus is going to return. But the details of the return of Christ, our beliefs about the millennium and the the timing of the last things, those are not things that we have to agree on. In fact, they're things we're likely to disagree on, at least at some level. And that's okay. We don't break fellowship over those things. Other disagreements will be about matters of behavior. Not behaviors that are clearly forbidden in Scripture, like stealing or committing adultery or sexual immorality or drunkenness. Those things we all agree are sinful because the Bible is clear about those. But what about issues of behavior that are less clear, like whether it is acceptable for Christians to drink alcohol in moderation? There's probably going to be disagreement about that. The question before us this morning is, how should Christians handle such disagreement? Does church unity require that we argue it out until we all agree? Or that we remove whichever group is in the minority, or make them feel welcome or unspiritual until they remove themselves because they are weary of our constant disapproval? Does church unity require that we all agree on everything? Or can we be unified on essentials while disagreeing on other issues? Paul addresses some of these issues in Romans chapter 14 and 15. And the disagreement that Paul is focusing on in these chapters is not the same kind of disagreement that we are likely to face among ourselves, but the principles that Paul articulates in these chapters apply to a host of problems, including some of those that we ourselves have faced or are facing or will face. We won't get Paul's full answer today, but we will get a good start. These chapters don't get talked about a whole lot. They're all the way at the end of the book almost, and uh, not a lot of people make it this far in Romans, right? But these chapters are important, and they are especially important right now because we are facing so many more disagreements than what we are used to having to deal with, some of which are new, and therefore more difficult and more complicated and, and more likely for us to disagree about because we haven't had to think about them until recently. So let's look at Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. I've said multiple times that Romans 12 and 13 are mainly about love and how we should uh, live lives of love as people who belong to Christ. And that same theme continues into chapter 14, as we now ask the question, how do I love a brother I disagree with? All right, so let's look at the first four verses again. 
Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So, here's the principle right at the beginning. If you have a brother you disagree with, you are called over a, you know, a, a minor issue, right? Not a fundamental of the faith, but over a, a more minor issue. You are called to love and welcome that brother and not to fight over your disagreements. He uh, articulates this, Paul does, by talking about the difference between those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith. So the first question we probably want to ask is, well, which one is which? Who's the strong in faith and who are the weak in faith? And what do we mean by being strong in faith or weak in faith? Well, probably most people assume that whatever convictions they have come from a strong faith and and not a weak faith. So it's a little tricky uh, to nail down which one is which. Um, But here's how one uh, respected Bible teacher explains what the weak in faith means here. He says, the weakness in faith to which this chapter refers is not weakness in basic Christian faith, but weakness in assurance that one's faith permits one to do certain things. That's a really helpful distinction. In other words, he's saying, when Paul's talking about the weak in faith, he's not saying they're on the fence about whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. Like they kind of believe in the resurrection, but not as strongly as they should, or they, they're not really sure about whether or not Jesus is God. Th- those are fundamentals that all Christians affirm, that all Christians believe. And he said, that's not, that, we're not talking about whether your faith in those doctrines are, is weak or strong. What Paul is talking about when he's talking about those who are weak or strong in faith is those who have a stronger or weaker assurance or confidence that they are permitted to do certain things without dishonoring God. So in this chapter, the things that we're going to see Paul mention in particular are things like what it's acceptable for a Christian to eat, what is acceptable for a Christian to drink, whether a Christian needs to act differently on certain days of the week or certain days of the year, or whether you can treat every day the same. It's not doc- they're not doctrinal issues that he's talking about uh, a weakness or, or strength of faith on. They're not doctrinal issues. They are behavioral issues. They're practical issues of, of, um, of what Christian living looks like, what things you can do, what things you are not supposed to do. And some are convinced there's lots of things that they can do, and some are convinced that there's a lot of things they're not supposed to do. And so that's where the disagreement 
lies. And here's what Paul says to the two different groups. To the strong, he says, you need to welcome your weaker brother and not quarrel with them, right? Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, meaning you who are not weak in faith, right? Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Don't don't say, yeah, come join me in this church uh, as long as my argument convinces you that you're going to do exactly what I think you ought to do. Don't say, yeah, you're, you're my brother as long as we agree over this questionable issue. Welcome them, but not to quarrel, not to fight over opinions. All right? Um, and so the, the strong must welcome the weak, but they must not quarrel. Again, over these sort of secondary or even tertiary uh, issues of behavior. Now, we should say here, right, there are things Christians are called to contend for, that Christians do have to take seriously, that do form uh, legitimate dividing lines right, around the body of Christ. For example, in Jude, uh, Jude opens his letter by saying, Beloved, I was, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Right, so he says, there are things you have to contend for. What we call the faith, right, the essentials of what it means to be a Christian, that there's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It's not by works. It's not by merit. Those kinds of things, we contend for those. We, we draw boundary markers around the church, around the body of Christ, and say, if you believe these things, you can be in. If you don't believe these things, you're out. Right? You're welcome to come to church, but you're not a Christian if you don't believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if you don't believe in salvation by grace through faith and not by works and, and those kinds of things. Those, those are boundaries right, that we have to hold firm on. We can't say, oh, you believe in a different God than us? Oh, that's fine. You're still my brother in Christ. No, you're still my neighbor. I still love you, but you're not a brother in Christ if you believe in a different God or you believe in a different way of salvation. So there are things we need to contend for. But these kinds of things that Paul is talking about here, these opinions, these matters of debate and dispute, are not things that we need to contend over, not things that we need to quarrel with one another about. And here's something significant about this. Both groups, the strong and the weak, I suspect both groups had verses in the Bible that they could point to that to say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is why I'm not doing what I'm not doing. But here's the thing. Not every biblical issue is worth fighting over. There are people who think, if I can find a verse in the Bible that I think supports my opinion, then I can argue with you over it, and I can tell you that you are wrong and need to do what I think you need to do because I've got a verse. But here's the thing. Sometimes both sides have a verse. Sometimes both sides have a list of verses. 
And sometimes it's not easy for people to decide, even when they both believe the Bible is true, both take seriously the call to holiness and godliness, both want to be faithful to what God has called them to do, even so, there are some issues where we're still going to disagree. Even though we're both trying to honor the Lord, and we're both trying to take the Bible seriously, and we're both trying to do what the Bible says. So, having a verse that you think supports your opinion does not automatically make it an issue worth fighting over. You can be strongly convinced from Scripture about certain things, and still, you should not compel your brother and sister of Christ to agree with you. Not everything in the Bible is worth fighting over. What exactly were the believers in Rome disagreeing about? What kind of What kind of opinions did they have that perhaps they were inclined to quarrel about that Paul was telling them not to quarrel about? Look look at verse 2. He says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So in, in this particular instance, right, Paul spells out for us who the strong and who the weak are. Right? Um... The strong is the one who says, I can eat anything. And the weak is the person who says, "Ah, there's some things I don't think I can eat and honor the Lord. So they eat only vegetables. Now, when we talk about, you know, our own issues, right, we may not be able to decide who's in the... Whose camp is the strong camp and whose camp is the weak camp. But here we know because Paul spells it out for us. Now, why would some people in the church think, I can, eat on, I can eat everything, and others in the church think we shouldn't eat everything, we should eat only vegetables? Well, there's uh, different opinions about this, right? Scholars disagree over what exactly is going on. Paul doesn't spell it out for us so clearly that we know for sure why each group was thinking what they were thinking and doing what they were doing. But there are a couple of primary options that come up when you read about these things. And one of them is um, that the issue was over meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, so in the first century, the Roman Empire covers most of the known world. Most of the Christians in the world at that time are living in the Roman Empire, if not all of them. right? And most of the Romans were pagans. And they worshipped a host of gods. And they sacrificed meat to their idols, right? And, and they poured out wine in, in offering to their idols. And so uh, Paul addresses, in particular in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 8 and 9 and 10, he addresses the issue of whether or not it is acceptable for a Christian to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Part of the problem was you didn't always know. It's one thing to go to a temple where meat is being offered to an idol and then eat some of that meat. In that case, you know. Right? But what if you're just going to the market to buy your meat for the day and you think, you know, I don't think that guy at that stall, I, I don't think he's a Christian. Before he offered that meat to me for sale, it's possible he sacrificed a portion of it. 
which consecrates the whole of it, am I allowed to eat that? That's a difficult issue. Right? That's, that, that's, how do you answer a question like that? So that's one option. That some people in the church in Rome, they're being so cautious about not eating any kind of meat that's been sacrificed to an idol that they won't eat any meat at all. They're only eating vegetables. Right? Perhaps that's what Daniel was doing. If you remember in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel's been taken into exile in Babylon and he's being uh, trained in the king's court. And he says, I can't eat the king's food. I, I can't drink the king's wine. Please feed me only vegetables. Probably it was because he thought that the meat and wine had been offered and sacrificed and was therefore defiled and unclean for him to eat as a Jew. So maybe that's what's going on in Rome. The other possibility is that some of the believers in Rome are sort of still tied to some of the Old Testament laws about uh, clean and unclean meat. They still don't feel comfortable eating pork or you know, other things that were, were labeled unclean in the Old Testament. They, they still just don't feel right about eating whatever they want to eat. Right? And so they're eating only vegetables. Perhaps they're also abstaining from wine. Things like, like that. Right? I, I'm inclined to think that's more likely what's going on uh, at the church in Rome. But, it, but it's difficult to be certain. Right? But that's their disagreement. Right? Their disagreement is over whether or not, as part of it anyway, whether or not it's acceptable for a Christian to eat everything or to eat only vegetables. Eat meat or not eat meat. Alright, so what are they supposed to do about that? Look at verse 3. He says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains Pass judgment on the one who eats. So whatever camp you're in, Paul says, don't be despising or condemning or judging the people in the other camp. If you feel comfortable eating everything, Paul says, don't look at the people who are only eating meat and say, you guys don't really trust God. You don't really believe the gospel. If you really believe the gospel, if you really believed what Christ has done and what Christ has... You wouldn't worry about that stuff. And if you're in the camp that's only eating vegetables, don't look at your brothers who are eating everything and say, you guys don't care about holiness. You're not taking the whole Bible seriously. If you were really serious about following Jesus, you wouldn't touch that stuff. Even if you're not sure, you would be just extra careful and it's not worth it. But you guys aren't serious about following Jesus. You're just too, you're too lax. Paul says, don't, don't do that. Whatever camp you're in, don't look at the other side and think that the reason they're doing what they're doing is because they don't really have faith, right? or they don't really take holiness seriously, or they don't really believe the Bible, or, or whatever. Don't despise them. Don't judge them. Don't condemn them for what they're doing or not doing. Paul says in particular about the group that eats everything, he says to the weak, don't pass judgment on them because God has welcomed them. You think that because they're eating meat, you're probably thinking 
you guys, you, you can't be in fellowship with God. Because there's no telling what you're eating. And if you're eating something unclean or eating something sacrificed to an idol or whatever it is, that, that's hindering your fellowship with God. Paul says, God has welcomed them. So you welcome them. God has not drawn a boundary here and said, if you eat meat, you're out of fellowship with me. So you don't draw a boundary there and assume that if they're eating meat, they're out of fellowship with God. Now, again, we don't face this same exact issue now, right? We don't have a lot of conversations about what is acceptable for a Christian to eat or not to eat. But we do have similar kinds of issues that Christians have strong disagreements about. Now, before I say anything else about that, uh, here's what I want to say first. This church has handled the divisiveness over politics and the pandemic over the last year amazingly well. And as your pastor, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for that. Um, it's, it's God's mercy, right? It's God's grace to us. I'm so grateful for it. Um, you know, you from things I've heard, you know, just you hear about other pastors really struggling in this season, really struggling with their church and whatnot. Um, I, I know that this is probably not the case everywhere, that um, churches are handling all these kinds of things well. Um, and so I, I'm just grateful that God has given us the, the unity here that he has. I, I'm, and so I, I want to I commend you for how well you have responded to all these things. Right? So I'm not preaching this sermon as a rebuke, right? as though you've not done this well, because you have. Right? But um, at the same time, this is where we are in Romans, and it's always helpful for us to be growing in these things and to be thinking about these things anew and from different angles and whatnot. Um, and so let me give you an example of something current that this text and the principles in this text apply to. Wearing masks. There are Christians right, who seem to think that if you wear a mask, you don't trust God. You don't have faith. You're living in fear if you wear a mask. And there are Christians on the other side who seem to think if you don't wear a mask, you don't really love your neighbor. You don't love people, you're just selfish. And and there are probably a a host of perspectives in between, right? And maybe even more extreme, but certainly in between. How do we handle an issue like that as Christians? There's no, I mean, you can say you should wear a mask because the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that might be a good, strong support for your position if that's the position that you take. Right? But you're not going to convince somebody who is on the other side of the fence from that verse that they have to wear a mask, most likely, because it doesn't say anything about wearing a mask. Right? That, that, that's, an, that's an implication that you're drawing from a general command. It doesn't say anything about masks. Right? So, but, and, and you know, the other side could say, well, you, don't, you shouldn't be wearing a mask because 
God says, fear not. Okay, well, you're not going to convince the other side from quoting all the verses that say fear not, not to wear a mask. They're not, it's just, it's, you can't solve it that way. Right? We can line up all the verses that we want. But there's no, Jesus never gave a straight up command. You know, if there's ever a pandemic and the government requires you to wear a mask, here's what you should do. There's no, there's no clear cut answer like that. Right? And so Christians are going to disagree. And we're disagreeing even though we're all trying to take the Bible seriously. We're all trying to do what we think most honors the Lord. I'm sure there are exceptions, right? People who don't, who, uh, you know, are Christians, but they're not even thinking about what God thinks about it, you know, perhaps. But but most Christians, I think, they're seeking to honor the Lord. They're wanting to do what's right. They're, They're trying to think about what the Bible says about what they should do here. And the fact of the matter is, no one can say with 100% conviction, this is what you ought to do in every single circumstance. We just don't know. We have to do the best we can. We have to read the Bible as thoroughly as we can. We have to pray for wisdom. We have to ask for God's help. But at the end of the day, we're just going to disagree, some of us. And that's not new. And that's not really a problem as long as we handle it the right way as long as we respond to each other the right way as long as we love each other and don't despise each other and don't condemn and judge each other over our differing opinions right you can say the same thing about vaccines people have strong differing opinions about vaccines we're just going to disagree some of us Right over how to respond to things like that. So what does Paul say that we should do in those kinds of scenarios? Well, he says, don't despise the person who doesn't agree with you. Don't judge the one who's not in the same group as you. Right? Don't look at your brother in Christ who's trying to make a conscientious, wise decision and say, you don't really trust God. That's why you're acting that way. Or look at them and say, you're not really taking the Bible seriously. You're not really taking holiness seriously. You're not really loving people like you're supposed to. Don't do that to each other. In verse 4, he presses this home a little bit. And, and explains why we should not treat each other that way. Why we should not judge one another. Why we should not look down on one another. Why we should not despise one another. And here's what he says, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All right. So his basic question there is, Who said you get to decide what people can do and can't do as Christians? You and I, we don't don't have all the answers. We We don't know all the right things. We're trying to make the best decisions we can, right? But he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
They're not ultimately accountable to you. Each one of us is ultimately accountable to God, as Paul will say later in this chapter. Every one of us is going to give an account to God. And that's the accounting that really matters. And let's be honest. We don't know what Jesus is going to say when we stand before the Lord about how we were supposed to respond to all this pandemic stuff. We don't know whether he's going to say, why didn't you wear a mask in that scenario? Or I'm proud of you for not wearing a mask in that scenario. Or whatever. You know, we don't know. We don't know. And so we can't say, because you're doing that thing, you're not a faithful servant of Jesus. Or because you're not doing that thing, you're not a faithful servant of Jesus. We're not the Lord. And our brothers and sisters in Christ are not our servants. They're the Lord's servants. And the one that each one of us has to worry about pleasing and honoring is the Lord, and it's not everybody else. Right? So who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. Right? God's the one who's ultimately in charge here, and, and it's how we handle this before him. Right? That, that's what ultimately matters. And he says, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So the people who were only eating vegetables and were not eating meat, you can imagine them you know, sort of looking over at the people who are eating everything and thinking, brother, I don't know how you're going to make it. I, I, don't, I don't know how, I don't know how you, you just look like you're ready to fall away from the Lord, you know, or fall on your face spiritually or, or whatever. You're, is it, you know, I just, I just don't know. And the people who are eating meat, you look over at the people eating only vegetables, they, don't you, haven't you read, don't you know what God has said? What, what's wrong with you? You know, your, your faith is so weak, I'm just waiting for it to collapse. Paul says, he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One of the things you notice if you, uh, I don't, if you read church history, if you read uh, the lives of believers who came before us, here's, here's the thing. Almost all of them did something or thought something that we now think is crazy, unacceptable, maybe even ungodly. But they loved Jesus. They were faithful Christians. They read the Bible. They sought to do the best they can. And in most cases, we would assume the Lord upheld them. The Lord was able to make them stand. There are some things they're going to have to give an account for. There are some things we're going to have to give an account for. Maybe that will surprise us. Maybe that other Christians, you know, if the Lord doesn't come back 200 years from now, maybe some Christians will look back at some decisions we made and think, how could they do that? My point is, the Lord is able to sustain us even when we go astray on some things. Even when we get some things wrong. Even when we try to do our best, praying, reading the scripture, talking to uh, wiser, godlier believers than us, try to carve out the best path, sometimes we still end up going the wrong way. But the good news is that our 
fate, so to speak, spiritually, is not ultimately in our hands. We're in the Lord's hands. And though we are responsible for obeying the Lord and doing what God says and all those kinds of things, it's a really good thing that it's not easy for us to wreck the whole thing. Right? Jesus said that we're held in His hands. And no one can snatch us out of His hand. Right? And He will sustain us. He will uphold us. He is able to preserve us, even if we are on the wrong side of one of these issues. Even if we are misreading the Bible on, or misapplying the Bible on some you know, particular controversy in the culture or in the church. Don't assume that you know where your brother or sister's heart is. Don't assume that you know where uh, what, how their standing is before the Lord based on this you know, behavioral thing. Trust that God is able to preserve them in the same way that He's able to preserve you. Now, there's a lot more help and insight and instruction to come in the rest of chapter 14 and into chapter 15 to help us renew our minds and to grow in this way of thinking because it's not the default for most of us. But here is what I want us to take away from this first paragraph. There are going to be things we disagree about. There are things we disagree about, and there will be new things we disagree about in the future. There will be things we have strong opinions about, maybe even biblically-based convictions about, that we just don't need to fight over. We don't need to judge each other over or despise one another over. You've been doing really well at that. You really have. And I I don't say that just to make you feel good. I'd say that sincerely. You really have been doing well with that. So let's continue in that spirit and resolve not to judge one another over these differences, but to welcome one another despite our differences, just as God has welcomed us. Let's pray.